And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding well just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this. Things so the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left, and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, Crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. But his advice went unheated. This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes far away. And I said, yeah, and I'm going to be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, the hard hats in the air, and we're clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. What you're hearing 
are the chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. And they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen, and it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden start realizing that, oh my God, here it comes in this mist. We were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. It's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down and kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their 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 slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds. Yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale, George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet, ultimately, American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness. I just keep thinking about the smell. And as always, you can send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org if you've heard of a quirky one like this, or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories. Kevin Briggs is a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped to prevent some 200 suicides. During his career, he was called to the Golden Gate Bridge about twice a month to respond to someone poised to jump from that bridge. Here's Kevin recalling one such encounter. We received a call of an individual over the rail and standing on it's called the cord, C-H-O-R-D. And I was the sergeant on duty. We worked 12-hour shifts. It was starting to, to get dark out. I had a new commander for our area office. He's the guy in charge. And I told him, hey, I'm going down there. It's almost 6, but I want to make sure everything goes smooth and see if I can do anything to help. So he goes, okay. He goes, but I want to go with you. He was new. He wanted to see this. We get down there. One of my officers is engaging this individual over the rail. He is standing on that cord, hanging on to the cables and looking down. So I just wanted the officer to know that I was there. So I touched his shoulder. He looked back and saw me. But the gentleman he was speaking to looked back and looked right at me also. And he said, you're the negotiator, aren't you? No, sir. I'm just here to help whatever we can do to get you back over and get you some assistance. He continues to look right at me. He goes, you have three master's degrees, don't you? I bit right into this one. Yes, sir, because that's a hook. That's what we can use to extend the time with these folks. So the officer, being the very smart and intelligent man, he did, sees the guy engaging me, so he does this. He steps to the side. I would have done the same thing. Now it's on me because he's engaging me. He's under the influence of alcohol, very emotional as most people are up there. He's going with his mood up and down and up and down. And I'm going with him, and it doesn't, it's not going very well. I'm not able to connect with him that well. He's not giving me much information. And he keeps looking down, and I tell my commander, you know what, this isn't going very well. This, this may go bad. You might want to step back in case he goes. He goes, nope, I'm going to stay right here. Okay. So I keep going, and we found out. We, what we call hooks, things that I can connect with him, whether that's family, whether that's something sports that we can connect with. We found out about his family, and I continue with that. How would your family feel, do you think, with you gone? And we expanded on that. It was going well. And then all of a sudden, he just turns around, holding on that cable, looks at the water, and starts doing this heavy breathing. And to me, that's a big indication that he's going to go. So I had heard of a technique, and the only time you can really try this is during this type of situation. So I did this. Hey! It's to snap him out of that sequence of what he's doing, whether they're counting, heavy breathing, and it worked. And it worked well. And he turned around, and he was angry at me for doing that. But we reconnected, and I said, hey, brother, I'm here for you. I don't want to see you do anything. So we talked about this for a while and kept going about the family. I kept focusing on that. He decided, okay, all right, you listened. I'm going to come back over. So he did on his own. Fantastic, fantastic. We got him some help. We take him to a hospital. And that's not a movie that he's involved in. That's real life. And he's got to figure out how to make a connection. And if you noticed, he used the word listen. And he did, because you can't connect to somebody if you don't listen to them. 
And you can't go into these things with a plan because everybody's different. And how calm he is and what he's like, it's just, he's just already, you know, he's got that, just the perfect demeanor to figure out how to do that. And my goodness, he's not in a rush. Here's Kevin telling the story of another encounter with a would-be jumper. Coincidentally, this man was named Kevin too. There again on the Golden Gate Bridge. I received a call of a man over the rail. I responded with my motorcycle on the sidewalk down there. I saw him on the sidewalk. When he saw me, right over the rail, I thought he was gone. Around the two towers of the bridge, it's just this small pipe. Kevin stood on that small pipe for 90 minutes. During that 90 minutes, my knees were hurting like hell because I was kneeling down, talking to him so he could look down at me so I can empower him. That's what this is all about. For most of this, except for four or five minutes, I listened. Kevin spewed things out and was crying. His birth mother had abandoned him. His depression, all these things, school, being bullied, all these things had taken a toll on him and nobody had listened. I say it's very easy to listen, but actually it's really not. If you're giving them their full attention and you're hearing what's going on, instead of your own agenda and trying to think of, okay, how can I top that story? What can I do? What's my response going to be? If we can just take this in and listen, it's very difficult to do. We're not taught to listen. We're taught to read, write, do math, all these things. We are not taught to listen. How we do things when we're up on that bridge, we use active listening skills. Open-ended questions, paraphrasing, summarization, I messages to connect with these folks. High emotions equals low rational thought. So we try to stretch that time out as long as we can. If I would just walk up and say, go back over here, what are you doing? For one, the uniform scares people. It does. I know that. We walk up slow. We approach slow. I ask their permission to come up and speak with them. I'm going to empower them as much as I can. Whatever hooks that I can get, family, friends, sports, whatever it is, we're going to go with that, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to expand on that. We expend that time, allow the rational thought to come back up, and this is basically how it works. This is what we do. Some of the damaging phrases that we do not use, calm down, really gets people angry when you say that. More, you should. You should. They don't like that either. Nobody likes hearing that. You should do this. You should do that. Doesn't work. Have you tried this? works much better. Have you tried this? Why places blame makes them very angry, makes us angry. Why did you do that? Why are you here? You're not getting the understanding of what's going on. And I understand my favorite. Do we really? Do I understand when he's over that rail? No, I may have depression, but it doesn't go to that level. I don't understand, but so if I understand you correctly or if I hear you correctly, and they'll tell you how they feel, and we can correct that. Very, very important. Kevin did come back over that rail that day after that 90 minutes. We were invited to New York City American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he spoke there, and he actively speaks now. 
to people about what happened during his life. How did he get to that level? He didn't even know how to get to the bridge. He doesn't remember even driving to the bridge that day. But he got there, and he was over the rail. And it wasn't I saved him. I have saved nobody. Nobody, not one person. I may have been a conduit, but these people come back over the rail. It's them doing it. They're the ones that make that decision. It's easy to let go and fall. Very easy. It's much harder to come back over that rail. He's had those same problems when he came back over. They're there. They're not going away. But he faced those. Pulled up his bootstraps. Went head on with them. He still has issues. We all do. But he's here. And he's doing really well. And that's Kevin Briggs, a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped prevent over 200 suicides. And by the way, you can learn more about Kevin Briggs from his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair, or go to his website, www.pivotal-points.com. And by the way, it's so true what he said about listening. It just doesn't get taught. And we're taught how to read and write and perform and debate, but not to listen. You know, in Proverbs, well, it says, no one is as deaf as the man who will not listen. And Stephen Covey had written so beautifully and brilliant about listening and said, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And that skill set that Briggs is talking about, we can all use a little bit of help on that listening skill. And boy, those bad words, calm down, you should do this or that, and so true about I understand. No one wants to hear that. My goodness, this guy should be teaching courses for all of us. Kevin Briggs' story, the California Highway Patrolman, retired here on Our American Stories. stories you're listening to the great george Strait, who has tried to retire but can't he's still out there touring and playing and i say he'll do it forever and we love bringing you voices from all over america to tell stories of the things that well ordinary americans do build and accomplish one of the last original texas dance halls the broken spoke has endured for over 50 years opened in 1964 the spoke in austin is a real success story with us now is the owner, James White. James, your roots in Texas run deep. Who is Andrew Patton, and why did he settle down in Austin? Oh, uh, James Andrew Patton, uh, he was my great-grandfather, and that's where I got the name James. 
and uh, his his father, my great great, uh, he came uh, from Texas. Uh, he was born in Tennessee, then he went to Alabama, then he went to Mississippi, then he heard about uh, the Texas Revolution, and so uh, him and another group they was marching from South Carolina, and they kind of came through Mississippi, and they had a little song about you know marching for Texas independence and. They uh, just sang along and, and walked most of the way. I mean, they had to take a boat every now and then, you know, to cross over some of those rivers. I, I don't know how they got through Louisiana, a bunch of swamplands down there, but but they got they got here and then, and they did uh, come. And uh, my great great, and his name was uh, James Madison Patton, and he fought for Texas independence and he settled in Central Texas. Uh, he was uh, married uh, right here in uh, Travis County, about. McDevin, middle of Texas, and uh, he was married, I think, in 1846, and he was in the last Indian fight here in uh, central Texas. Then his brother got shot by an Indian, and that's when his mother said, well, I'm tired of this frontier life. We're going to move back to civilization, which was only 40 miles, coming back to which is now present-day Austin. At the time, it was called uh, Oakmanville, which was changed to Oak Hill, Texas. James Andrew, he opened up a general store there. You know, he's the postmaster of Oak Hill. And now I own that building. It's a historical building. Uh, my wife and I, we're proud of our Texas ancestors and what they did. And uh, my uncle used to always say, well, you know, they made it safe for us to sleep on the porch, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he went ahead and helped civilize and pioneer uh, that country because it was rough back in them days. And then uh, eventually I came along in uh, 1939, and they named me after my great-grandfather, James Andrew Patton. Tell me about your mom and your dad. Well, my mother's maiden name was Lena. My dad's you know, first name was Bruce White. She loved to dance. Her brothers had kind of a lumber yard there in Oak Hill. And back in them days, uh, if you didn't have a dance hall, if you didn't have a place to dance, they would uh, end up having house dances. And my father, uh, he went there, and uh, they have, like, uh, box lunches, and uh, who would ever bid on, like, your woman's uh, favorite pie that she cooked or the lunch that she made, they would eat, you know, the pie together and, and eat the lunch together. Then they have a house dance, and a house dance is when uh, you always have a fiddle player for sure, and then you try to get you a guitar picker, and if he's lucky, you know somebody had a like a snare drum set up. Anyway, they would kind of roll up the rugs and move all the furniture out on the in the yard, and they would just uh, dance from room to room in the house, and that's what the house dance is. And that's where my mother and dad they started going together, and uh, they would dance together, and uh, so that's uh, they ended up uh, falling in love and. Uh, they got married uh, right here in Texas. You know, they were true Texas to the core. They liked to have fun. My dad, he ended up being um, a deputy constable, and he was uh, more like uh, one of the bouncers up there in Oak Hill, and they all knew him and everything, but he, he would tell some interesting stories how it seemed like on Saturday night everybody wanted to get drunk and maybe get in a fight, you know, but it's kind of part of it, you know. But thank goodness they're a lot calmer now. They don't want to... <laughs> fight like they did way back there in the 30s. Yeah, lucky for you. (laughs) You joined the Army, James, come out in 64, and you're 25 years old, you have no money, and you have an idea. Uh, Talk about this dance hall you started. 
and I loved country music all my life. And I got to hear country music 30 minutes in the morning around 6 a.m. It would come on over in Okinawa, and I was um, in the United States Army. I was in artillery and uh, Nike Hercules uh, missiles. And uh, But anyway, I got thinking, what am I going to do when I get out of the Army? And so when I got back, I was lucky enough to get stationed in uh, San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston, the old fort, the old quadrangle down there. I thought, well, you know, I might just, uh, it'd be neat to have a place of my own and open up a, a country dance hall. And so I never didn't know that much about how to run it. But I thought, well, you know, I'll just think up a name first. And I got thinking about something original, something Texas, something Western. I started thinking all these names, horse names and cattle names and wagons and wheels. And all of a sudden, I, I kind of zeroed in on a, on a wagon wheel. And then I remember this old... Uh, movie called Broken Era back in the 50s with Jimmy Stewart and it kind of a light bulb went off in my head I said you know I'll just buy me a couple wagon wheels and I'll lock a spoke out each one and I'll put one on each side of the door coming in and I'll name it the broken spoke. It stuck James tell us about the first day you opened beer was 25 cents a bottle oh the good old <laughs> days you gave away a lot of food free barbecue cheap beer and some pretty girls sounds like a formula <laughs> well, you know, we're very fortunate to always have pretty girls come out to dance with. And there's nothing better than to be in Texas and do the Texas two-step with a pretty girl right in front of you as you kind of dance around the floor doing the Texas two-step. But at the time, I didn't have enough money to finish the place. I had a bunch of cheap chairs that didn't last no time. I remember my aunt lent me a little money to buy the paint, to spray paint them, because they didn't look exactly the way I wanted it to. And I bought a lot of, uh, I went out on a limb and got credit. I had good credit, strong back, and uh, and the willingness. I, I never did think I wouldn't make it. You know what I mean? I never, a lot of people, they think, man, I'm going to figure this out. I want to do all this stuff. But, but they never quite take the plunge or the jump. Or I just, uh, I never feared that happening. I went ahead and got, I bought five cases of beer. That's all the heck I could afford. And uh, then I went ahead and started selling it for 25 cents a bottle. And uh, what we did for the grand opening, which is about two days later, we went ahead. I, I sold it five cases of beer, and uh, I bought 10 cases. And I hardly, I just didn't look back no further. I just kept going forward. And I thought, well, you know, they always give a free barbecue when you open up a a place of business. We, we've always been kind of family oriented, where people always brought their wives in and their children in. That's kind of a Texas thing. But anyway, I thought, well, you know, I'll give away a free barbecue. I didn't realize I was going to give away 300 free barbecue plates, you know, but that's what we did. I really didn't advertise it first. It was kind of like word of mouth. At the time, it was a sleepy little city, and everybody knew everybody. I knew everybody that came in the place. I knew their families. I knew uh, where they worked at. We was on a first-name basis. Or I, Back in time, I was 25 years old, and there was people coming in there, 50, 60, 70 years old, and they'd look at me, and they'd say, well, hell, you don't know what the hell you're doing. says, you won't last six months at this place. And I just kind of said, well, okay. I just kept out on working. I work in uh, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, never got a day off, and 
my wife would chip in and help me when she got off her day job, and I'm very blessed that my wife, Annetta, she loves to work, and she's still working by my side. And it's whatever success that we've had, I mean, she's, uh, she's right there with me, you know. James and his wife, side by side, shepherding one of the last original Texas dance halls, opened it up in 1964, and we're going to continue our conversation with the owner of The Broken Spoke in Austin, Texas, James White, after these messages. stories and we continue with our conversation with James White and he's the owner of the legendary Austin Texas Dance Hall the Broken Spoke and he opened it in 1964 with some well some cans of spray paint uh, some beer and that's uh, some six packs a couple of keggers and uh, some barbecue and some free barbecue with that and that's the American spirit folks comes back from from the army and just says hey let's start a dance hall and it's been one of the longest continuing and operational dance halls in the country, certainly in the state of Texas. James, let's talk about the musical acts over the years you've had there. Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash. Heck, George Strait played one night a week for seven years. Talk about how all of this started. Talk about your first big name star, a guy named Bob Wills. Well, you know, uh, it just uh, one of those things that happened. When I first started booking the band, I paid this one band $32 a night. And then I paid another band that uh, played on Friday. That was my Sunday band. Friday night, I had Travis and the Westerners. That was that cost me 25 bucks. $35 was Bill Darcy and the Melody Drifters on Saturday. Then I used to kind of pass around a tip jar if we took in, you know, maybe 20 bucks, maybe. That way, the Saturday night band only cost me 15 bucks. So finally, we started you know, charging 50 cents at the door to get in on a dance night in the dance floor. And uh, then we finally got up to a dollar, then two bucks. But then all of a sudden, I graduated to the band. They were charging um, $60. And then they came up, and they was getting like 100 on a Saturday. And so we'd go up a little bit on a cover charge as it went along. And you're getting a lot better quality bands for that time. And then all of a sudden, some of us said, well, um, I think this is Billy Western in Milano, Texas. He said, you want to book Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys? And Bob Wills it was a household word when I grew up. Everybody knew who Bob Wills was. Everybody, aha, take it away, boy, take it away, you know. And, and he would start to fiddle and and he didn't sing that much. He had Tommy Duncan did most of the singing, kind of helped make him famous. But everybody always knew Bob Wills all across the country, especially the ones that were loving country music. And now they call it Western Swing because of the fiddles and the horns. 
But at the time, it all fell underneath the, the country music umbrella. And so did rockabilly, and so did, uh, you know, bluegrass. It was the proudest moment I ever had, because I'm up there bartending, and, of course, the people at the bar, they think, you don't know what you're doing. I said, well, you know, I got Bob Wills tonight, and I was really proud of it. And uh, they said, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, Bob Wills, he won't show up. He'll be drunk. He'll be out chasing women. You know, hell, he's probably sick in the hospital somewhere. And about that time, you know, the door opened up, our front door, and Bob Wills came in all by himself, had a cigar in his mouth, had a fiddle on his arm, and a cowboy hat on. And so I, they, all the drugs at the bar, they kind of started punching each other. I said, as whispering, said, man, that, that's, that's Bob Wills. And so uh, anyway, I got the best of the drugs at the bar on that one because I got to go over there and shake Bob Wills' hand and get a photo taken. And um, back in them days, they didn't take pictures like they do today. But luckily, I got a picture, you know, several pictures with Bob Wills there. And that was my proud moment was to walk my first uh, big country music star on our bandstand. That was 1966. And I had Bob in 66. I had him in 67. I had him in 68. And then he started getting sick. And then... Uh, he passed away in uh, 1975, and the uh, Texas Playboys had agreed never to play a gig unless uh, Bob Wills, uh, while he was still alive, they didn't want to play a gig and mention his name in their intro. So anyway, and when he passed away in 75, uh, I booked uh, the original Texas Playboys. Those guys didn't have a regular job. I mean, working at a service station or you know, driving a tractor for the county or, you know, and they didn't have enough money to get here. And so offset limits, uh, at the time, they wasn't famous at all. They said, well, if you'll help us get Bob Wills, you know, uh, you know, we'll uh, plug your gig the next night. And so uh, what it was, uh, $2,500 we made for the band because we sold 500 seats at five bucks a, a ticket. And people were sitting in the floor in awe of uh, of all the Texas Playboys, and uh, they that made them become famous again. And uh, so that was my kind of helping hand to the Austin City Limits and to myself and to the Texas Playboys. Tell us about the the night Garth Brooks came into your place and played for free. And something tells me you you couldn't afford his list price because I hear it's going for about a million a night. <laughs> you know. I guess I just flat lucked out on the Garth Brooks thing because I, I love so many of his songs. You know, it was so big, and but I really realized that night what a nice person he is to talk to in person. But you know that that kind of it went on for about two weeks. Uh, his his people worked for him. They would call. They would talk to my daughter. They talked to myself, and we went back and forth. My daughter Jenny and. uh and I told her, I said, well, you know, when they call back, we don't want this to slip away. We're going to get this, uh, you know, we'll work with them. And as it is, they were just tickled to death to play there because Garth Brooks, he wanted to play at the Broken Spoke. He had never played there. He knew George Strait had played there. He knew it was a honky-tonk authentic dance hall. And then plus he was in town, and he was going to do a show on Town Lake for a lot of people the next night. 
And so, but you see, we got all the magic. We got all the all the, the press. We got all the Associated Press stuff. And plus, we made another real good friend in uh, all the people that work for Crossbooks. And he invited 40 people from Amazon to come in. And he invited 40 people that worked for him to come out. And uh, the people at Amazon, I guess they were so big, they even had bodyguards. So, anyway, I don't know, I guess all the higher-uppers. And But anyway, it was just something that was supposed to be kept a secret. And so I didn't tell anybody. I think some people from Amazon might have told some people. And I'm sure somebody that worked for me said something about it probably. But anyway, it all worked out fine. It I just didn't want to have like 10,000 people out there and him not to be able to get, get in. In, the, yeah. in the place, to get in himself. And as it was, it worked out perfect because they told me he was behind the spoke in his um, in his vehicle. And so uh, I went back there, and in about two or three minutes, he came over, and we shook hands and got talking to him. And uh, he was very polite, very nice, very appreciative. And uh, I told him I'd like to introduce him, and he said, I said, anything you want me to say? And he said, well, just say whatever you want to. So I said, well, uh, let me know when you want to go up there. And he said, well, I'll sit out here and talk to you another 30 minutes. It's fine with me, you know. And uh, anyway, he said, I'm just here to have a good time. And I think he did kind of put on his uh, Internet that, well, I'm in town. It's Friday night. I just really can't stay home in Austin, Texas on a Friday night with, in the music city, capital of the world. And so then he had a little picture of a wagon wheel with a spoke knocked out. So that was kind of a clue to all of his followers. He's such a tease. And so as it is, we had over 700 people out there. And after I introduced him, it was so magic that uh, I've got a low ceiling to spoke. And uh, very low. And... Uh, so then his first song was, um, I Got Friends in Low Places. And so it worked out perfect. And then he just did him his guitar. He just sang for 45 minutes, maybe an hour straight. And everybody loved it. And he played that guitar. And I couldn't get off the stage because there were so many people. But nobody really disrespected him. And uh, they didn't jump up on the stage or anything like that. And at the end of it, he turned around with a guitar and he handed it to me and said, uh, this is for you. And I was just kind of flabbergasted. He kind of lost the words because I didn't really expect that. I mean, I've had all these people over the 54 years, you know, give me things. But I've never had anybody say, here's my guitar, like on the stage. So I, that's very special. And what's so very special is James White's vision back in 1964. The broken spoke started, and imagine, he couldn't have imagined, actually, that a star as big as Titanic as Garth Brooks on a night, a down night while touring, would jump in and get in his car and go and play the spoke and then hand him that guitar that's proudly displayed in his club. James White's story, it's Austin's story in a way. I mean, in 1960, that town had 185,000 people in 2020. It's getting close to a million, and he grew that club with the town. And again, I can't think of many places in Austin, particularly music venues, that have been open that long. James White's story. 
here on Our American Stories, the story of American music and American entrepreneurship meeting at the intersection called The Broken Spoke. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to, well, just about anything. And we do eulogies, we do stories of songs, and every once in a while, we just go right back to some of the American classics and some of the great literature of the past, stuff that, well, schools just aren't paying attention to anymore, but we're a part of our heritage for so long. And one of those writers is the American poet Walt Whitman. And his poem here that we're about to play, a recording of it, a terrific recording of it, is Pioneers, O Pioneers. And it was first published in 1865. The poem was written as a tribute to Whitman's fervor for the great westward expansion in the United States that led to the California gold rush and exploration of the Far West. And by the way, we've spent a lot of time on this subject with our Lewis and Clark stories, the most epic road trip ever. But right now, here's Walt Whitman's poem as read by Will Gear with accompaniment by Ennio Marconi's Ecstasy of Gold. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Come, my tan-faced children. Follow well in order. Get your weapons ready. Have you your pistols? Have you your sharp-edged axes, pioneers, oh pioneers? For we cannot tarry here. We must march, my darlings. We must bear the brunt of danger. We, the youthful, sinewy races, all the rest on us depend. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, you youths, western youths, so impatient, full of action, full of manly pride and friendship. Plain I see you, western youths, see you tramping with the foremost. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Have the elder races halted? Do they droop and end their lesson, wearied over there beyond the seas? We take up the task eternal, and the burden, and the lesson. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the past we leave behind. We debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world. Fresh and strong the world we seize. World of labor and the march. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We detachments steady throwing, down the edges, through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go the unknown ways. Pioneers, oh pioneers. We primeval forests felling, we the rivers stemming, vexing we and piercing deep the mines within. We the surface broad surveying, we the virgin soil upheaving. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Colorado men are we, from the peaks gigantic, from the great Sierras and the mighty plateaus, from the mine and from the gully, from the hunting trail we come, pioneers, oh pioneers. 
from Nebraska, from Arkansas, Central Inland Race are we. From Missouri, with the continental blood intervened, all the hands of comrades clasping, all the southern, all the northern pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Oh, resistless, restless race. Oh, beloved race in all. Oh, my breast aches with tender love for all. Oh, I mourn and yet exult. I am wrapped with love for all. Pioneers. Oh, pioneers. Raise the mighty mother mistress, waving high the delicate mistress, over all the starry mistress. Bend your heads all. Raise the fanged and warlike mistress, stern, impassive, weaponed mistress. Pioneers, oh pioneers. See my children, resolute children. By those swarms upon our rear, we must never yield or falter. Ages back in ghostly millions frowning there behind us urging. Pioneers, oh pioneers. On and on the compact ranks, with accessions ever waiting, with the places of the dead quickly filled, through the battle, through defeat, moving yet and never stopping, pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh, to die advancing on. Are there some of us to droop and die? Has the hour come? Then upon the march we fittest die. Soon and sure the gap is filled. Pioneers, oh pioneers. All the pulses of the world, falling in, they beat for us, with the Western movement beat, holding single or together, steady moving to the front. All for us, pioneers, oh pioneers. Life's involved and varied pageants, all the forms and shows, all the workmen at their work, all the seamen and the landsmen, all the masters with their slaves, pioneers, oh pioneers. All the hapless, silent lovers, all the prisoners in the prisons, all the righteous and the wicked, all the joyous, all the sorrowing, all the living, all the dying, pioneers, oh pioneers. I too, with my soul and body, we a curious trio, picking, wandering on our way, through these shores amid the shadows, with the apparitions pressing, pioneers, oh pioneers. Blow the darting bowling orb, blow the brother orbs around, all the clustering suns and planets, all the dazzling days, all the mystic nights with dreams, pioneers, oh pioneers. These are of us, they are with us, all for primal needed work, while the followers there in embryo wait behind. We today's procession heading, we the route for travel clearing. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Oh you daughters of the West, oh you young and elder daughters, oh you mothers and you wives, never must you be divided. In our ranks you move united. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Minstrels latent on the prairies, Shrouded bards of other lands, you may rest, you've done your work. Soon I hear you coming warbling, soon you rise and tramp amid us. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Not for delectation sweet, not the cushion and the slipper, not the peaceful and the studious, not the riches safe and parling, not for us the tame enjoyment. Pioneers, oh pioneers. Do the feasters gluttonous feast? Do the corpulent sleepers sleep? Have they locked and bolted doors? 
still be ours to die at hard and the blanket on the ground, pioneers, oh pioneers. Has the night descended? Was the road of late so toilsome? Did we stop, discouraged, nodding on our way? Yet a passing hour I yield you in your tracks to pause oblivious, pioneers, oh pioneers. Till with sound of trumpet, far, far off the daybreak calls. Hark, how loud and clear I hear it wind. Swift to the head of the army. Swift, spring to your places. Pioneers, oh pioneers. And there you have it, folks. It doesn't get better than that. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people it's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal and of course it's Heidi Mitchell and her latest question why do some people have inescapable foot odor and thus the music and Heidi by the way has just recently moved to Chicago and of course because of her move move the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor welcome Heidi that's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. <laughs> hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all, all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet. And one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like, it. I don't know, like you, you've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and, and you know, we, we, we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when, we, when I brought it up to, to my wonderful editor, they thought that was a great idea, and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history that I had growing up. And by the way, we yep. did everything in these. That, that odor sound... No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross-country runner. And, and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot. And, and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house. And it infected yeah. the clothes. Like, my clothes smelled. My, my, I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh, so, 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 so does your husband, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human. And I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. <laughs> anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but it, it, they, podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so 
you know, we're, we're, I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also, because you, you find it when you're young, like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much, you know, your odor, your body is producing that this doctor that I spoke to, um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she, she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. And and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than 250,000 sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, you don't want to know um, bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's gross. It's gross. And and so 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 what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help, you know, diminish it. Like, he'll outgrow it, hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to um, to get synthetic material that is sweat, what is it, wicking. So as long as so he, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called, um, Smart wool. So it's actually, it's, it's, I think, a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your, foot, your foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down, and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh. So... I know, it's pretty gross. So even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's going to, it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame the this, this stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some, there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus. You can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot, something like that might make it worse. Then she, she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should, um, you should have two pairs of shoes, which actually my, my kids don't, they don't, they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully, like for 24 hours, and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that- then you want to use, these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So, so between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing. And by the way, this <laughs> periodically worked when we did it. Is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the. I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's, it's really you know. And for him, I think he's he's embarrassed. Um, and I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like the breeze can work. And I said this is going to mask the odor. Um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. She puts on the rubber. I can't believe a foot closet smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. 
Hopefully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze. And, and also, what's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so- home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her, her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes, and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something, and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled. And that will kind of maintain the – it will kill the bacteria, and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, though. I can tell you that. I just – Throw them out. Well, I'm, really I'm, hope, I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did grow out of it. But, I mean, it wasn't until college. And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle. Because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just, oh. cre- it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And, by the way, that leads me to one last thing. Because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last, a few weeks ago. I get into a cab, and, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about, like, body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal lighting. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor. And as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good <laughs> news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And <laughs> this could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home <laughs> and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do.
is Our American Stories, and you're listening to some music by Fred Davis, recorded in the South Euclid, Ohio home of Howard Yusuk back in August of 1969. And you're thinking, who's Howard? Big record producer? Not exactly. These days, Howard is the vice president of research and publications at the Manhattan Institute, a free market think tank in New York. But back in 1969, he was a young man who loved the blues, and he was so impressed by his friend Fred Davis, he wanted Fred's music recorded. That's a friend. Let's hear more about this from Howard himself, here performing a piece published in the City Journal entitled The Fred Davis Blues. I always wondered what might have happened to Fred Davis. I'd be reminded of him by the half-inch reel-to-reel tape recording of his music, of which I always took special care. I believed that music would be his ticket out of Cleveland's Huff Ghetto. When we lost touch, I assumed that nothing like that had happened. When I finally found out what had happened, it was both better and tragically worse than I'd imagined. He was a childhood friend in a way. We met when I was 19 in the summer before my second year of college. We both made our way early each morning through the stinging, low-hanging smog mist of Cleveland's industrial Cuyahoga River Valley to the factory where we unloaded 100-pound sacks from freight cars, piling them onto wood pallets. But our lives up to that point could not have been much more different. He was about a decade older, came to work by bus, sent by a day labor agency, and he had thick, strong arms that reflected time spent in prison. I drove the old Ford my father had bought me. I strained to lift, knowing that if I failed, I'd reflect badly on my dad, given his executive role in the front office. We learned by chance of our shared enthusiasm for the same music. Southern-born blacks outnumbered hillbillies in the shop, so the radio was tuned to either of Cleveland's two AM rhythm and blues stations. It amused both groups, though, when, to pass the time, I'd sing along, as I did one day to Chains of Love, Bobby Blue Bland's hit single that summer. It's three o'clock in the morning, baby, the moon is shining bright, sitting here wondering, where can you be tonight? It's three o'clock in the morning, baby. Lord, and the moon is shining bright. And oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, baby. And let me tell you, the moon is shining bright. And oh, I was just sitting here wondering, Lord, where can you be tonight? Lord, yeah. I learned that before he'd gone to prison in his hometown of Kansas City, Fred had played piano and guitar there professionally until he said, 
he made the innocent mistake of carrying something for someone. Drugs, it turned out. It led to several years in the joint, as he put it, in the parlance of the 1950s hipster, in which an apartment was a crib and a girlfriend an old lady. I saw how well he could play during lunch break one day when I had brought my guitar to the job. When most of the others went across the street to drink, the two of us sat at a table outside where he played and sang. You could hear the Kansas City influence the more you listened. The jazz blues arrangements of Jay McShann confessing the blues. complex arrangements of Dinah Washington. What a difference a day makes. What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours. What the sun and the flowers. Harder-edged but still smooth stylings of Lowell Folsom or Eddie Boyd, five long years. Fred had a full set of his own originals, too, and he sang them with a piercing, high, tearful voice from deep, slow blues like Midnight is Falling. complicated tunes, subtle and swinging, with a hint of T-Bone Walker. 
Our relationship evolved to one of teacher and student. He showed me how to play all up and down the guitar, using big, rich chords fingered in an unorthodox way, his thumb wrapped under and up the neck. I later taught the fingering to my son, who uses it professionally. He gave stern, uncompromising musical advice. Don't play too loud and don't play too fast. Eventually, we'd spend time together after work at a small house owned by his girlfriend, Bertha Reed, a professional test kitchen cook in the heart of Cleveland's East Side Ghetto. She appreciated my interest in Fred, I think, but it seemed to me that she'd also grown tired and skeptical of his music dreams. He didn't play much around the house, she said. And when we come back, more of Howard Usick's remarkable story about his friend, Fred Davis. This is how music connects people, folks, across every race, across every class. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. We've been listening to the story of bluesman Fred Davis and his friendship with Howard Husick back in 1969. As Fred taught Howard more about music and the two grew closer as friends, Howard got an idea. At some point I resolved, idealistically, perhaps patronizingly, to rescue him. It would be my callow mission to restore him to his career in music. This was 1969, the summer of Woodstock. Civil rights, racial justice, they were in the air, even after the King assassination. Obscure blues musicians from Mississippi John Hurt to Magic Sam were being discovered or rediscovered by white enthusiasts and introduced to new audiences. I had a business plan, you might say, to record Fred, backed by an amateur blues band of kids I knew from my suburban high school. I asked a friend who had moved to Philadelphia to take the tape to the blues agent, Dick Waterman, who lived there with his then-girlfriend, a young Bonnie Raitt. Waterman expressed interest. I wrote Fred to let him know, and he wrote back in a letter filled with an almost desperate hope. At present, I'm fine and still working like hell. Man, I do hope something comes of that tape just sitting here wishing like hell, but I'm not giving up. I'm still with my old lady, she's tops. Also, I'm still off the alcohol. Well, Cat, I'm gonna close for now, but we'll script you later. You do likewise, and especially if you hear something from the tape. So, until later, always a friend, Fred Davis. I'd kindled his hope and felt responsibility to follow through. I arranged to meet with Waterman myself in Boston. He was tough and unsentimental, 
but sufficiently sold on Fred's music to write a letter on his behalf to Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, which had booked one of his clients, Mississippi blues singer Fred McDowell. Would they add Fred Davis to the program? I found his style to be quite good and a very interesting combination of a Kansas City style that also shows some of his earlier Arkansas home as well, Waterman wrote. If you could possibly use him on your program, I'm sure that his pride would be restored and his very fine music would not be abandoned. A whole new life, I hoped, would open up for Fred. Having moved on from the factory job, though, I never heard how it turned out. I never heard again from Fred. I always wondered, I feared, in fact, that I'd given him false hope, meddling unnecessarily in his life, and perhaps giving the impression that I was much more connected and capable than I was. It was a dynamic of which Dick Waterman was clearly aware, as reflected in his letter to Baldwin Wallace. I have not told Fred that I am writing to you because I don't want him to get his hopes up too high. It was not until just recently, enabled by a subscription to the Ancestry Search Service, that I found out what happened. A review of the digital files of the exponent, Baldwin Wallace College Student Newspaper, reveals that the school's April 10, 1970 folk festival included blues legends, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Muddy Waters, but not Fred Davis. Whether they didn't want to include him, or if he declined for some reason, I can't say. But the story of Fred's fate emerges from public records. An Ohio death certificate dated November 8, 1988, almost 20 years after I knew him, reveals that Fred Davis, 49, identified as a laborer, had died of a gunshot wound to the chest with multiple visceral perforations. A Cleveland Plain Dealer story went further. Two men had robbed him of cash in a liquor store parking lot. When Fred resisted, one of them shot him. Such is the tragedy of talent bleeding out as it does every day in black America. Davis was that year's 122nd homicide in Cleveland. But there was more. Someone had gone to the trouble to write an official newspaper death notice for Fred Dave Davis, son, Oscar and Emma Davis, Kansas City, Missouri, member the Blues Express Band. Blues Express? Had he rebuilt his career after all? Had my encouragement mattered? I could learn the answer to the first question, at least. Blues Express still plays around Cleveland, and I was able to track down its new leader. Crazy Marvin Braxton, he'd taken over after the man he called Dave had died. I was working as a doorman at a hotel downtown, recalls Marvin, when they told me, get to St. Vincent's, that's the charity hospital. Dave's been shot. He was good people, Marvin said, a demanding band leader who always cautioned members, yes, not to play too loud or too fast. With a significant local following, the band played regularly, it turned out, at Fat Fish Blues for mostly white blues devotees, but also at Andy's Lounge in the lower middle class black Buckeye Road neighborhood. Fred had fans, including a pudgy white suburban couple who never missed a gig. He was planning to renovate a new girlfriend's house and to marry her at the time he was shot. He didn't deserve that, 
Why would somebody shoot him, I asked Marvin. Just for the $1,000 he was carrying? How would they have known? Fred, it turns out, had another side. Everyone needs a hustle, Marvin said. Fred, apparently, was selling liquor illegally from the back of a car. He'd buy it in bulk from the liquor store that he was going into at the time he was shot. The two cousins who held him up knew about Fred's business from their sister, who was a disappointed girlfriend. When we went to Dave's place, Marvin told me, we found hair powder she'd put under his pillow. It was voodoo. One of the two robbers, the actual shooter, hanged himself in a Cleveland jail. His accomplice was sentenced to five to 20 years for manslaughter. Two years later, in 1992, he sought probation, citing his Lima Correctional Institution Certificate of Achievement for having completed a substance abuse program, as well as the fact that he hadn't been the one who pulled the trigger. He was a Vietnam veteran. His request was denied. It's a tragically familiar story of black-on-black -black violence. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. The statistics are grim, but they can't reveal how much talent and how many dreams die each year on Cleveland's east side, on Chicago's south side, or in so many other neighborhoods. My friend's murder was an obscure act of violence, passingly mentioned in a small newspaper story, yet every day, such obscure acts silence talent and potential. Was the Fred Davis I had known the same guy who sold bootleg liquor from his car? Had he really been set up all those years before in Kansas City? A search for legal records or newspaper stories about his criminal case comes up empty. The only record of Fred's life in Kansas City is a yearbook photo, circa 1959, from the city's then all-black Lincoln High School where he was a member of a clean-cut, neatly-dressed class, many of whom an Alumni Association website shows have gone on to professional accomplishment, as Fred did in his own way. Located near 18th and Vine, the mecca of Kansas City jazz, Lincoln was the school for college-bound black kids. Records show he'd come from a two-parent family, one of 10 children, born to an Arkansas sharecropper who had moved to Kansas City to work for the railroad. Had he always had a dark side? Perhaps an unjust drug bust had soured him. Perhaps a criminal record kept him from having the sort of day job that other Blues Express members had. Maybe he just couldn't stand menial work, not when he knew what it felt like to write a great song and sing the way he could. I still have that tape. It's been transferred and digitized you can listen to it now on SoundCloud. Just search for Cleveland Blues, Fred Davis. The Lincoln High Alumni Association may be honoring him. I'm interested in recognizing him and for his music to be played again. I admit it, I'm still trying to save Fred Davis. And what a story. And thank you, Howard, for sharing that with us. And we'll do our best by playing Fred's music right now. Howard Yusick's story 
Fred Davis's story, and sadly, as Howard pointed out, when people get shot like this or killed like this, it's the talent that gets lost. It's a human life that's lost. We can never forget that amongst the grim statistics. He was the 122nd male African-American, many of them in Cleveland, gunned down in 1988. A life cut short, talent cut short. And so we leave with all of us listening to Fred Davis here on Our American Stories.